You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. A man walked into my office with a satchel. We both knew what was inside the satchel. Inside the satchel was a sock. He never opened the satchel. If you are a Canadian of a certain vintage, then you have spent a lot of time with this man. This man has spent a lot of time on the floor, crouching at the feet of celebrities, while his hand insulted them. His name is Stephen Kersner. You might know him better as Ed the Sock. He'll be with me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jason Petra, Lucas Mayling, Eric Weidenheimer, Faiz, Mirdad Lagmani, Kevin Walsh, Matt Elliott, Sabrina Madieu, Matt, and Wayne Jenkinson. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what 
Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Now, you want me or Ed? I want you. Good. Okay. (laughs) So tell me about the first time you set foot in in City TV. What did you make of the place? Wow. The first time I set foot in City TV as uh, going there for business, I guess. Actually, it was the first time I set foot in City TV altogether. I'd seen it on TV, but I'd never actually walked in there. Jeez, it was so long ago, Jesse, that I'm just trying to remember what I did think of it. Uh, I was just generally in this feeling of... uh, uh, excitement and adrenaline because I was going in to uh, have a meeting about bringing Ed there. Yeah. There was a sense as I'm thinking about it now of looking around saying, wow, I'm actually inside this place. So uh, what, how did you know it at that point? What year was this and what was your like? It would have been 93 that I would have gone in to talk to them. Okay. Yeah. So and, you know, everybody knew City TV at that point in time. Everybody knew the, the little Toronto T-shirts and that, every, that everyone wore. And uh, this was like, this was before City TV everywhere. Yeah. That came a little bit later. But everybody knew what City TV was, which is it was the TV station that made it seem like yeah, you too could get into the television business. Yeah. You know, it didn't seem remote. It did, and I say that in a good way. Yeah. It didn't seem remote. It didn't seem elitist. Um, it didn't seem blonde-haired, blue-eyed across the board. Yeah. Um, it it was someplace that was doing something completely different, which is exactly what I'd been doing running my cable station. Not doing the city TV model, but also we I, I uh, ran the smallest cable station in Toronto. It's called Newton Cable. doesn't exist anymore. Uh-huh. Family-owned. So I uh, ran all the programming and I did marketing. And uh, we had no money for anything. The owners would buy a couch and we would get the box from the couch, literally. And we would use that to make it a table for panel discussions. We'd throw a cloth over it. And um, so I determined since we had no money, the only way, if you're going to get good programming with no money, you do it on personalities. So the stranger or more odd or eccentric somebody was, the faster they got a show. And I, we, I had an entire program schedule of oddballs. And we just did things completely differently. And the rest of the cable industry hated, hated me, hated us. You were like Weird Al in UHF. It was, exa- it was that for real. Yeah, it really was. And we, it wasn't a day that went by that we, me and, and the, the guys and girls, you know, that worked there, that we didn't almost fall down laughing 
because it was like the, the stuff was unbelievably funny and weird. And we knew at the time that enjoy this moment because this kind of thing's never going to live forever. And that's when you developed Ed the Sock was. I was there when I developed Ed yeah. the Sock. Yeah. Um, I'd been doing political programming as me. There was a variety show that needed a co-host to help guide it along because the host was brilliantly funny but not really good at format, not really good at knowing when interviews had just run their course and uh, needed someone to guide that format along and you know, tell them to go to break and stuff like that. But um, for one thing, I wasn't going to be a sidekick. And for the other thing, I was doing these political – like serious political shows. Um, so I didn't want to s- s- switch gears. So I created Ed to, f- to be that co-host. Um, and this was just said, oh, yeah, well, your co-host is going to be a sock puppet. And, and All right. Like, oh, well, yeah, this was a friend of mine, and this was the least strange thing in his life. Right. So I get to tell. <laughs> and the personality was based on uh, two people he and I knew initially. The initial ed personality was a, a merge of two people we'd been two, – two adults we'd been doing sort of lampoons of. Their personalities were these famous people. I mean, it's, oh it, no, oh no, not at all. Because it seems like a type. It seems like you're doing some kind of like cigar chomping, like Archie Bunker meets a Hollywood mogul kind of a. Yeah, and and, and yeah, I could certainly see that. Um, for me, what I see when I look at the early stuff is that it, the, the the mix of these two people, and they were no, they were just uh, friends, fathers. Right. Uh, they were nobody famous, um, but you know those types exist in in real life, in a sense, and. Uh, of course, initially Ed was named Ed because he was claiming to be Ed Asner, he, right? The real Ed Asner right. from uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, sure, um, as Lou Grant, and uh, it just sort of took on its own life where it was fun, and everyone enjoyed in, in you know the department enjoyed doing it, enjoyed you know, so it was just a fun thing to do, and it just grew and grew from there, and I kept adding structure to it, and yeah. the character changed. I mean, the very first Ed, if you watch Ed stuff from early, even early city stuff to the stuff that came even five, six years later, the evolution in the character is fairly clear. How did Ed evolve? What was the well, character Ed, arc of Ed the Sock? Well, Ed was initially just insulting people, doing semi-Borscht Belt stuff mm-hmm. and just being just, insul- just in, being a Don Rickles type mm-hmm. um, and grew to using that humor towards making a point about social issues and things like that. I remember in... Uh, Season two of the city show, um, I decided Married with Children was on at that time, which I'd loved, but it had gone from a show that was a satire of the Cosby show and all that hypocrisy and bullshit, especially now we know that, yeah. um, to um, a show that just sort of every week tried to outgross itself and outshock value itself. It was bizarre, actually. That show was like it, it, be- it became like abstract. Oh yeah, it it was it it was like sketches within a half an hour that almost had the thinnest tissue of story just to try to show uh, sexual innuendo and gross-out humor. And I realized that when you do something that's just based on that kind of shock, you need to constantly increase that shock until you're past the point of people's interest. And I didn't want to do that. You just made me think of something, just to interrupt you, that, that just struck me like a thunderbolt. Like, thinking back in that moment when Bill Cosby was everyone's dad— and Al Bundy was just like Fox schlock gross yeah. out. And look at today when Ed O'Neill is like so respectable and is like on a network sitcom and yeah. you feel really good about Ed O'Neill yeah. and Cosby is Cosby now. Yeah. Well, I I hated Cosby at the time. Yeah. I've always hated Cosby. I always thought he was condescending and and uh, uh, patronizing and I've never, liked, uh, I've never liked Cosby. My wife loves Cosby. She used to love his stories. 
about him and his brother Russell and stuff. But she was raised at Jane and Finch. She knew these. You know, this was a this was an environment she was familiar with. For me, I just I was like, can you just get to the point? I was never a big fan of Cosby. Anyway, um, so I decided that uh, I don't want to go further gross out with. Mm-hmm. It's not the way to go. Um, so I remember the first episode we did. Um, a thing about uh, updating toys to make them more relevant. So we had the Fisher-Price U.S. hospital, and there was people outside who couldn't afford to go in, like poor people and stuff like that, had a uh, nightstick, a police nightstick, that was sprayed in the colors of the African flags um, to uh, to be more culturally sensitive while they're beating black people. City was not happy. Uh Uh-huh. Because all of a sudden, Ed's using that comic license, that bite, to say something. Yeah. And they're like, can you go back to talk about Ed's girlfriends? I said, no. Right. Um, no, I even, even Fromage, which I remember watching yeah. uh, in high school every year, you would kind of use the, the music videos as a jumping off point to talk about like – That's exactly what – yeah, you're exactly right. We used it as um, – there's messages here in these music videos that people aren't picking up on and it's uh, – you know, people called it you know, media literacy, um, pointing out what these images were really about and how – horrible the messaging really was and using it to make a point and you know on I got to give that's right I you know this, this question of are there media critics in Canada and there used to be and there aren't anymore and like I've never put Ed the Sock on the list but I think I got to give Ed the Sock props like Ed, you you were a media critic thank doing, you yeah thank you um I was very proud of that and to like a young audience like before we got into this meta 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 thing of like <laughs> commentary on music videos and commentary yeah. on the commentary of music videos we, yeah. we like it's hard I think for people today to understand you know especially teenagers who like have access to so much yeah. critical content if they want on it, how monolithic music was in the like if if oh, yeah. if the machine wanted you to suck down Alanis Morissette, then you were sucking Alanis Morissette down yeah. all the time. Like it was just jammed down your throat, and that was sort of the only like kind of Mad Magazine. And you were and you were told that you liked it. Yeah, yeah. You were told that that this is good, and you liked it. And let's face it, media voices are very persuasive because especially teenagers or younger audiences, but this is true of anybody, you don't want to seem, when everybody says something's good, you don't want to be the one who says it's not good because then their attitude is, well, you simply don't have any taste. Yeah. Um, And so when people are on television telling you this is the greatest thing, you want to agree with it because you don't want to seem like you don't have taste because these tastemakers are telling you this is good. It was super powerful, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and on the same station, there was Ed kind of giving like uh, – Yeah, this is crap and <laughs> yeah. uh, this, is, this is all marketing and this is all constructed and none of this is legitimate. And, you know, you're being manipulated and, um, you know, things of that. But, you know, done with humor. Um, listen, great kudos to Chum Television because who today would allow that? Yeah, it really does feel like thinking back on that, and it's interesting to me to hear you say that you stepped in in '93 and already had this like big idea of City TV. I actually, in my head, mm-hmm. Ed is there with Steve Anthony and Monica Diol and Master T. <laughs> like, there's just like this weird moment where these like, and it like, it, it, it looked kind of homemade and everything. That was the that was the beauty of it. Yeah, and and not everyone was super attractive, and, and that was also the beauty and, of yeah, it. And, but anyhow, there there still were these like 
personalities that are, are kind of like they all kind of coexist at this moment. And it felt like you hear people talk about it today still. You know, I mean, Zneimer was like shown the door apparently literally and, and everything got corporatized there. But there was this heyday that people still talk about. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like what was it like to work there? What were these other oh, personalities like? It was what, was, what was the culture like? There? It was amazing to work there because uh-huh. it was like a, it was like a step up from what I was doing in cable but with broadcast legitimacy and actually money. We weren't using cardboard boxes. The next, the next level up, but, you know, um, we didn't have a ton of money. And so instead they adopted, you know, the, what I'd always followed, which is be entertaining. Yeah. Use ingenuity. I really believe that retail television, where you pull everything off the shelf at retail prices and put together a show, is devoid of any inspiration. It's antiseptic and it's usually shit. And it doesn't really catch on anybody because there's nothing there to hook them. It's just Teflon. Whereas at Chum, I mean, we would literally, you know, we would have an idea, grab a camera guy, go and shoot it. Put it together, you know, you, other people, I, I did my own editing, but other people would, you know, get an editor in their downtime who was like, yeah, this is a cool project, work on it, and then just present it. Here's a show. Yeah. You know, especially at Much Music, that was how things worked. You just make stuff up, and the environment encouraged people to be creative, supported creativity, understood that not everything's going to be perfect, but give it a shot. It didn't, sh- Much Music didn't sh- shut creative people down, it encouraged them. And, Understood that in encouraging them, it meant take off the leash, take off the straitjacket because you want what these people can offer. You don't want to then – you don't want to sort of make them have to come through the cookie cutter. You want them to be their own shape. And you know, God bless them for allowing that and for creating that environment and that culture where everybody was – I can't say everybody was friends. That would be bullshit. Um, but – there was a sense of it was like high school in yeah. a sense, but without so much of the, the the drama and the angst. There was you know little cliques and so on, but everybody knew everybody else. We all knew what we were doing, and everybody felt like they were part of something. Like I don't know that anybody today working in corporate TV feels like they're part of something. They it's a job that they have. Yeah, here we felt like we were part of making something that all of us. T- it was bigger than all of us together, um, but each one of us had our role to play. And it felt like um, a living, breathing place because of the fact we would just, hey, you want to do this? Here, here's a good idea. Here, is Dave free with the camera? Let's go and shoot that. And somebody will edit it. And, you know, and, and, and away we went. That's how fromage uh, happened for me as well. We've mentioned like 10 times. We should probably explain what it is or what it oh, was. I, I always assume everybody knows because I keep every day someone talks to me about it. Fromage was a uh, program, and, and we're doing it again this year on, online at metaleader.com. Oh, okay. But it uh, took music videos usually the most popular videos of the year, and deconstructed all the stupid, cheesy, you know, uh, obvious, pretentious things that are in these videos, the things that people at home were thinking and saying, yeah. but very few people on television did, and sort of counted down to the worst transgressors. Initially, it had been conceived as a program that was looking at only weird music videos that were never seen. And then making fun of them. And, you know, my thought was, that's shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. Um, and then the guy who'd produced Fromage moved to space. Yeah. And there was nobody to produce the show. So it was just going to die. So and this was 99. And so my wife, Leanna, and I said, let's just do it. So we went. We uh, made it the, you know, the, the Millennium Edition, the worst of music videos of the 20th century. And we went through, we, like, 
had to dig up these videos. A lot of them were on three-quarter inch tape, which is an old format where the tape was falling apart. We yeah. had like oxide on our arms and rashes from, from Mr. Roboto from Styx. And uh, we put this, this hour-long show together completely on our own, just the two of us, uh-huh. and then handed it in. And they said, what's this? I said, it's fromage. We thought we weren't doing fromage this year. Well, here you go if you want to use it. And then they put it on. It did way better than any previous fromage ever uh-huh. did. And it became, in fact, dollar for dollar, their most successful in-house production uh, year after year because we were getting numbers that were close to the numbers of the Much Music Video Awards live broadcast. Wow. But costing nowhere near that. Plus, they would run like four hours of fromage. Like each year they would add another hour. So they'd run marathons. Yeah. So, you know, when I left, they were running four-hour fromage marathons, which meant that they were running something that I'd done three, four years ago, and it was doing better than stuff they were making now. Um, It was just the replay value. The numbers were just strong. Yeah, yeah. So this environment where you could go and, like, make a TV show on spec, hand it in, and they would put it on the air around the country, was that – Moses Snymer's doing was that was that like one person's vision uh, and everything you're talking about p- investing in people and, and a creative atmosphere like that what, what like he likes to say that yeah. he is this TV visionary I mean is it well is it and true? you know what and and absolutely he was is yeah um, and I'm far from a Moses psychophant I uh, uh, he and I had one really epic run in that went on for about ninety minutes to two hours once what happened I think he wanted to bring me to heel was the nature. And Moses had this thing that if he was rough on you and you snapped or you bent or whatever, then that's then you you would be his vassal forever. However, if you stood up to him in a reasoned, intelligent manner and showed passion for what you were doing and objected, he left you alone. Uh-huh. Because he's realized, okay, here's somebody who actually gives a shit. Yeah. He had his visions of what Ed should be, and I disagreed with them. What were his visions of what Ed should oh, be? Oh, it was just some odd things. Like he said, uh, Ed should be promoting alternative lifestyles, so every second show he should be in a dress. And um, yeah, it, it, the face you're making was pretty much what I was making at the time. Um, That's not what I thought you were going to say. No, it, <laughs> it was Odd shit. And also that Ed – this is when the show was still a talk show with a desk and a couch. We abandoned that after the third season. But he said Ed should be at the desk and the co-host should be on the couch. And I said optically that doesn't work because it's a large desk and a small puppet and then two giant, two actual human beings on the couch. It's It starts to make it cartoony in ways I don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look – there's just no way to make that work. And he said our people can make it look good. I said your people can't affect relative sizes. Um, and <laughs> so we, uh, as a, as a sort of a respect to him, we did one 15 minute segment like that, uh, as a test and it was absurd and we knew it was, mm-hmm. he, I, they never even gave it to him because they looked and said, yeah, this, and okay, we, we, we threw it, you know, when we were doing it, it was like, boy, this is pretty stupid, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but after that, that sort of epic confrontation, I only had respectful, friendly uh, interactions with Moses uh, for the rest of the time. Yeah. Uh, never had any conflicts uh, with him because Moses respected people who really believed in what they were doing. And you hear rumors about him. And in this environment now, it's, it's important to distinguish what are the rumors that it's ethical to ignore because it's somebody's private life. And what are the rumors that somebody really should say something or, or look into? And I wonder where he falls because you, you still do hear things about well, the, way, I mean, the way he treated women. Um, I never personally saw him mistreat a woman. Never personally saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have a problem going on rumors because sometimes rumors build on rumors, build on rumors, and it becomes a mystique. Yeah. I don't think Moses did a lot to dispel it. Um, I, I don't know how much he knew about it because, you know, he's in one place and staff are another place. But this notion of, of Moses as sort of a, a libertine um, when it came to, to, to sex and so on, it was there. It was, you know, it was prevalent. People gave it – it, it was a given in the way people spoke. But I never saw that. Uh, I never saw him treat women any differently than I saw him treat men. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, he promoted women into positions of authority before other broadcasters did. So I have to question. I, I can't believe that he only saw women as you know playthings. He didn't treat them that way. Uh, maybe he saw some women as playthings and others he took seriously for whatever reason. I don't know. You know, there was always the jokes about Moses' bed in his in his office and and those things and. Um, but I that's that's a joke, right? He didn't have a bed in his office, did he? Uh, I I kept looking for it when I was in there, and I never really saw it. But it was almost a, it was a given that there was something there. Now it's not unusual because a lot of people work the, the crazy hours; they sleep in their bloody offices. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, there was a the Life on Venus Avenue couch I slept on many times. That was Ziggy's show on Much Music. Ziggy, right? On Life City. on Venus. A- yeah, that was one where I'm like, why does this yeah, exist? There was a pink couch and. It was the one I slept on more often than not because I was working over, you know, they're working all night. Um, so I don't know. Um, Moses' way of, of dealing with people would now not be something that's acceptable. It yeah. Leave companies open to lawsuits, uh-huh. you know, because, yes, he did yell and scream at people. However, he's hardly the only person in broadcast that did that or continues to do that. There's behavior that's allowed in television that. I just don't understand. When I was working still in cable, when Newton Cable was bought by Rogers and I went to work for them, there was this one guy who was their, their star director and he would yell at people. He would yell at the cameramen, you know, talk about their, their, their forefathers and things like just cursing and screaming. And he came under my, my supervision and I said, no more of that. There mm-hmm. is absolutely no reason for you to be acting like some auteur directing a cable show. These people who are volunteering, they're not here to be whipped. It's not galley slaves. Yeah. And what do you know? He was capable of directing without the screaming. And the other, everyone was like, that's just what he needs to do. It's like, well, if he needs to do that, he obviously can't do the job. Because part of the job in any job is treating people like human beings. So this is interesting to hear from you because, I mean, you're, so you're not actually an abusive asshole. You just play one as a sock puppet. Um, pretty much. Ed only ever goes after people who really deserve it, who yeah. have asked for it. Like I remember like Vanilla Ice did a piece with him and he was an asshole from yeah. the word go. I always gave people three strikes. Yeah. And then it's over. You know, gloves are off. Ed's about bringing down the targets that are too big for others to bring down. Yeah. Ed had more interviews with big name celebrities, more repeats than anybody mm-hmm. because – it was never about insult, going in and insulting them. It was never about going in and trying to you know, shame them or shock them or humiliate them. It was never about that because that's stupid. Great. You'll get one great interview and nothing ever again. And I never saw that as my purpose you know, is to, to insult them. It was to, bring, it was to, to relate to them as human beings. Mm-hmm. And you do that by kidding around the same way you kid around with your friends, the same way your friends are going to elbow you and rib you about certain things. That was the, the nature of the relationship is joking with but, people. But some people get the joke and play along and other people are like, why am I being insulted by a puppet? Sure. I always found that the bigger names loved it. Yeah. The smaller names were the ones you'd have, have trouble with. Uh-huh. The one exception to that was Anthony Kiedis of Red Hot Chili Peppers, who 
it was a very tense uh, five-minute interview. Because <laughs> um, there's some obvious jokes there with, uh, the yeah, socks. with the socks. and stuff like yeah. that, sure. And the thing is, after, after a while, everyone knew who Ed was across the U.S. and stuff, and people would come wanting to be interviewed by Ed. Uh-huh. Um, Christina Aguilera would only do the Much Music Video Awards if Ed would interview her. Um, <laughs> but tell me, what, did, what did Anthony Kiedis, what, how did that end? It was just tense. Uh-huh. And then Ed said, it, it, was, it was quiet, and Ed said, you want to hit me, don't you? And it was just quiet. He goes, no. <laughs> and I think that's pretty much where it ended. It, um, it was, he was an asshole. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you were an asshole, you got treated like an asshole. It was like it bounced off and it, it got went back on them. And, you know, but then there was people like Lenny Kravitz who had been at the – been there to perform. Yeah. And he had been a bit of a pain in the ass the whole time he was there. He wore his sunglasses, never smiled, was really, you know, this, this, this troubled artist type and then did an interview with him, with Ed. And Denzel Washington was in sitting with him, hanging out. Within about 90 seconds, uh, Ed asked him something and, and Lenny just paused and he, you'd see the, the, the quiver in his mouth trying to maintain that ass that, that, that he'd been. And he couldn't. He just all, it just cracked like ice. And he just started laughing and sitting forward and laughing. And Denzel Washington laughed so hard, he leaned on a tray of, that water was on. And the tray spilled all over the floor. It was this giant mess. But he cracked at that point. And after that, he wasn't an asshole to people because you can't maintain that distance when you've shown you're a human being. The most human thing that people can do with each other is laugh together. Yeah. It's a very bonding experience. It's also just the, the, the construct. I mean, and you saw this with, uh, with you know, Triumph and, uh, and Eminem later, you know, to try to maintain like this dour, tough guy attitude <laughs> to a hand puppet makes you look like a goddamn makes fool. Makes you look like an asshole. I should point out that uh, Triumph, the ripoff dog, did everything after I did it. He it, continued to fu- – like, he came around – the story with him is that I would – Let's been- quash the beef or, let, or let's uh, amp it up however it needs to go. I mean – he came after. Oh yeah, was it a ripoff? Yeah, Smigel ripped off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he did. And here's why I say that: because I had been dealing with the lead talent person, talent booker on Conan's show. I'd sent tapes. We'd been talking about having Ed come on as like this character. Uh huh. And I was very excited about that. Sure. And then one day, as I'm following it up, they just say, "No, uh, you know, we've decided it's not going to work for us." Like just like that. Uh huh. Um. And then less than a week later, their head writer, Smigel, ha- comes up with this idea for a acerbic cigar-chewing puppet that takes shots at people. And if there had been no, absolutely no way for them to have seen the programming, it'd be one thing. But this was a direct connection. Yeah. And I work in TV. I know that it's not hermetically sealed. If a lead talent booker was interested in it, then it went to the writers. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, he claims he, is not, he never saw it, he had nothing to do with it, and uh, that he didn't rip it off, and maybe he believes that. But uh, maybe someone suggested it to him that had seen it. I don't know. The, what I know is that <clears throat> Ed DeSock directly led to yeah. that. And then Ed was doing the interviews with celebrities at the MMVAs before uh, the dog puppet was doing them at the MTV Awards. Yeah. Like it was, uh, he was always following behind. Have you ever had a, an in-person encounter with Robert Smigel? No, but when Conan O'Brien was brought into town to do shows by Chum, um, I was at the point of saying, you know what, who cares at this point? Water under the bridge. Why don't we do a bit where Ed takes Triumph around 
certain spots, special spots in Toronto that, you know, he wouldn't, wouldn't be covered in a, in a Pearly's guide. And <clears throat> they said no. Yeah. They were like, no. <clears throat> and I think I understand why, because at the time there was an interview in Entertainment Tonight where Smigel admitted that sometimes he re-asked questions in post that he hadn't asked in, in person. Sure. So he was cheating. So people were reacting to not what he actually said. And I think he, if I'm him and that's what I do, I don't want to be unmasked by working with someone who doesn't do that and who may be funnier than you. Ed the Sock doesn't do re-asks? No. You have journalistic integrity about Ed the Sock interviews. I never drop in something that wasn't asked. Huh. No, it's, if, it, if it wasn't asked in person, it doesn't go in. That's just, that's just bullshit. I mean, you know that like 60 Minutes does re-asks. Yeah, no, that's bullshit. I don't do that. Uh, first of all, most of the time you would see if it was the interviews with celebrities, most of those were, were stand-ups. So it was just Ed and the person in the frame. Yeah. Um, there was no way to do cutaways and change right, the question. Right, right, right. Uh, but even when we did remote bits and we'd go to celebrities' homes and stuff, when we made stories and stuff like that, constructed stories, what was shot was what we used. There was no um, hanky-panky uh, and changing things afterwards. If you can't get it in the moment, then you didn't get it. You're setting someone up. You have the chance to, to fuck with it in post-production. They don't have the chance to, to, to fuck with their reaction. Yeah. So you're screwing with them. Yeah. And uh, that's cheap. It's cheap. It's disrespectful to your subject. And, if you, you know, again, if you can't bring it when the person's there, don't try to remake history so you look better at the expense of the other person. I had no idea there was such an ethical uh, principled stand <laughs> on the part of other side. I just think it's a given. Let me ask you a little bit more about, I mean, because there are two different narratives to mm-hmm. the heyday of much, the heyday of City TV. Sure. One is this, hey, it's a free-for-all innovation, pick up a camera, shoot something, everything you're describing. The other is, is that it was a bit of a factory. No one was paid very well. And that it was a bit of a, you know, once they were done with you, you, you know, it was such a weird oddball place. It's not like being, uh, you know, a classic rock DJ where you just go to a different market and be a classic rock DJ somewhere else. Or if you're a journalist or CBC, there's all sorts of ways that transfers. There are some examples of city TV personalities who had life after city TV. But there are many more examples of on-air personalities who kind of didn't do anything afterwards. Well, are we talking city TV or much music? Because there's two different stories there. Because City TV primarily produced news. Yeah. And they had, you know, reporters on who sometimes people felt that they, you know, they weren't where they, they wanted them to be. They didn't develop there. Or people chose to go into bigger, you know, a bigger organization like CBC or CTV. That kind of churn is normal for any news operation. Mm-hmm. City TV programming, the original programming, when one program didn't work, they'd try to find another one for you. Or they'd include you in somebody else's. Yeah. And on Much Music, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a factory in the sense that we had to turn out a certain amount of live programming every day. Um, and, and there was a bit of a who's the new VJ, who's the new cute person on camera. There was some of that going on. Well, there was, I mean, sure, though, they, though you didn't constantly get new VJs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you said it earlier about personalities. Much Music VJs were personalities. You know, my wife Leanna always said that they weren't the prom queen and uh, football captain. They were the the chess club and the people who got pushed in lockers. They were people who with personalities that the audience could relate to. I could see Steve Anthony pushing people in lockers, but... Oh, no. Steve Anthony would never do that. He yeah. might have stood there and sort of laughed, but Steve Anthony would never push anyone in a locker. Um, there I, were no, there were no, I, I take it back, Steve. I don't know yeah, him personally. No, there were no bullies there. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, in the... In the 
in the personalities, I'll say, the on-air personalities, I never encountered a bully. There were because we were talking before about about how people can egos get outsized in yeah. broadcasting. You're telling me that there was nobody who got too famous and started treating people poorly. There was no on-air personality. None much. of the ones I worked with. Uh huh. Um, I didn't work with the initial popular wave, like the first wave that got that got well known. Um, Michael Williams, Christopher Ward, J.D. Roberts, uh, Erica M. I didn't work with them. I came in as they were out, as they had moved on to other things. Yeah. Um, the people I worked with, no. I ne- never an attitude. The nicest people. Um, and we, it was a, it was a, it was a fraternity that included women. You know, what I mean, it was, a, it was. We were all in it together, and there was very little separation between on-air personality and crew. Uh huh. Um, Nobody was treated with kid gloves because they were on air. Every and nobody wanted to be. Everybody felt like they were simply doing their job in what we were doing. Nobody felt that their job was more important than somebody else's. That's why we. I mean, still friends with camera people and audio people and stuff to this day. So is you know Rick Campanelli, George, all these. We're still friends with crew. Yeah. Because they weren't just crew. They were people that were working with us. They were coworkers. Yeah. Um, Much music eventually, when I left, had transitioned from. Uh, going from people who were personalities to spokesmodels. Yeah. And that's when people stopped knowing or caring who the VJs were. And this isn't a slight on those new VJs. They, were, they did what they were hired to do. And they but were, they, were, they were cast to be something more and, like and, MTV. And, they were, yeah, and it, was, it was a veal cage for them. Um, we got to make up whatever. Nobody vetted our stuff. They trusted us as professionals. Yeah. And if we did something they didn't like, they would say so afterwards. And, you know, you'd adjust. Um, after I left, uh, while I was... In the process of leaving and after I left, it became – everything had to be vetted. Everything was, was uh, antiseptic again. So they used this environment that was much music, but they were doing programming that wasn't much music. Much music was YouTube before there was YouTube. It was video that you never knew what was going to happen. It felt handmade. It felt legitimate, mm-hmm. spontaneous. It felt like the people doing it gave a shit about what they were doing. Um, and as YouTube came around and became uh, more, you know, people started gravitating towards the net and videos and things like that. Much music started going the other way. They started making their stuff shiny and pretty. They started pulling people who they started going through the crowds who showed up and finding who they thought were the best looking people and pulling them to the front. And the people they thought were not the best looking would go to the back, which was so counter to the ethic of much music, which is you show up. What, what you know? You get in early. You get in the front row. It was there was no elitism there. Yeah. Um, this became elitism, and the more they did that, the more their ratings dropped and dropped, and they became irrelevant. Because no, never, I, I can't imagine any other time when a broadcaster pivoted so badly, yeah, so misread their audience that rather than say riding the crest of the YouTube stuff by owning it, because this was what we did. They decided they wanted to go and be shiny and slick, more slick like MTV, though with one one hundredth the budget or staff, um, and it showed. And in fact, they started to just play a lot of MTV reality shows. Yeah. So even the, the, the city TV footage with you know prettier people up front, you, there was just less that actually was shot in Canada. There that was, was less. The, yeah, the much footage. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, and, I, and I, was I, it the was it the buyout or was it was it? Uh, no, this was happening before that. Yeah. It. it Denise Donlin was a visionary. She and when she came in, I thought she was crazy. I thought she was full of crap because she was talking about making the channel relevant, making music videos relevant. And I was thinking that's like making bubblegum relevant. But she was right, and there was a direction to what she was doing. And she and I came to a meeting of the minds eventually. Um, no, she says every time Ed was on camera, she was chewing pencils. <laughs> um, 
we knew what we were. We knew that there was a backbone to yeah. what we were doing, a purpose. And um, when she left, that went away. And listen, there was a, a person who was in charge, uh, not the senior senior person, but a person who was in charge of making decisions at Much Music, who told me point blank, "Our audience is stupid, and they just want shit. So we're just going to give them shit." Well, you can name that person who said that. I'm sure I could. But I'm not going to. Um, and it's a, it's a name that would mean nothing to anybody yeah. except for the people who work with this person. Uh-huh. Um, but that was when I knew, okay, you don't understand your audience because Ed's audience was smart. These were kids who cared about stuff and the emails they would send and before that, the handwritten letters were impassioned, were well-written, were well-thought-out. You know, obviously, there's a lot more idealism than, than, than reality in what they were saying, but they cared, and mm-hmm. they were smart. And here I'm being told that the audience is just a bunch of idiots, and I never found that to be true. And, and it's just demoralizing, you know. If, yeah, you, yeah, let's all go produce shit. That's like, what, is that how you want to be? Is that what you yeah. want to do every day? I mean, I, I give this person credit because uh, they stuck to their guns and actually did just start giving them shit. Um, but then the final, one of the final... You know, straws for me was being told our audience doesn't remember anything that happened more than three months ago. Uh-huh. So don't reference anything that happened more than three months ago. And at the time, I was doing the smartass documentaries, uh, which I'm very proud was a finalist for a CAB gold ribbon in uh, documentary and social affairs, starring Ed. Uh, it was about it was about uh, hip hop culture and why it's criticized, and you know. Uh-huh. A whole bunch of things. It was, it was, I was very proud of it. Anyways, are you a, are you a hip hop head? Or are you a fan? No, nah, not really. Okay, um, but I'm not a fan of any. Like, I went into much music not giving a shit about music, right? Being barely aware of who was involved, and that was important because this was the fresh eyes that came in and allowed me to talk to people like they were just other people instead of being in worship of them. But the documentaries we were doing, of course, referenced things that happened in the 60s because we're tracing the history of stuff. And they said, don't do that anymore because our audience can't follow it. And they don't understand. I said, "Um, the numbers for smartass are higher than anything else you're doing. Mm -hmm. So obviously what you're talking about is a theory and I'm showing empirical research that it's not true. Yeah. And they, yeah, they don't understand anything more. Like they just repeated the same refrain, ignored the, the practical evidence. And it's like, no, this is, you know, my, my thought was, I think you're reflecting the level of intelligence you have or that you had as a teen. You're not reflecting this audience. And I refuse to talk down to these, to these kids because, you know, they had come to trust Ed that Ed was telling them the truth. That Ed was honest and authentic mm-hmm. and wouldn't just take mandates from head office. I remember our live show, Ed's Big Wham Bam, a few times calling the vice president of, of Much Music at home during dinner to complain about something that was going on there or some, a decision they had made. Like just calling directly live with no screening yeah. and talking to him. And he's like, hello, Ed. And, I mean – Again, God bless them for understanding the value of having a character that you let insult your own network. Look at Letterman did that for NBC sure. and CBS, and it made the network look better. Yeah, if you if you can show that you can absorb that kind of critique. But I have to ask, how soon was this before Ed left the building? Oh, it was long before. Uh huh. Oh, so, so what what, what ultimately happened? They wanted to dumb things down. Yeah. There were new people in positions um, making decisions that were untenable to me. Um, uh, to me, they, they lacked integrity, mm-hmm. uh, lacked respect for the audience, lacked respect for the staff. Um, and it was just no longer the place to be. It was turning into – you know, one of my – the most important books I ever read was Animal Farm by Orwell. 
because I have found— I did not think this was going to come up. All right. (laughs) I uh, have found so many instances in life where it becomes four legs good, two legs better, where people rise because they want to do something completely different and and change the system and eventually just go back to reestablishing the system. Yeah. Because once you become a successful rebel— the successful part takes over. You start hanging out with people in, you know, in the, the, the elites and you don't want to be embarrassed about what you do. You want to belong. So all of a sudden you start conforming to that uh, sort of mindset and you wind up betraying where you came from. And I've seen that so many times and that's what was happening at Much Music was four legs good, two legs better. Every pirate wants to be a captain. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ed lives on, and maybe we could finish. Um, I wasn't even sure I was going to ask, but maybe Ed could tell us uh, where everyone could find him <laughs> these days. Ed's not here today. Um, right now, it's, uh, I stopped uh, producing I Hate Hollywood, which we did on Channel 11 a, about a year ago. Um, now Ed is uh, coming. I've given up on trying to deal with TV. Yeah. Because all I'm told by TV networks, when they call you in and they want to do something, and they say, you know what, we were talking about it, and it was so popular on CDTV and Much Music, we don't know how we can make it work for our channel. It's like, what kind of fucking stupidity? How do you work in television when you think like that? TV, a brand name that people, that people recognize? That's money in the bank. Only in Canada will they say that that's a bad thing. Only in Canada will a recognizable name that will draw people in immediately be a bad thing. So... Uh, Working very hard to uh, right now, develop, devoting time to building uh, much more of an ed uh, web presence. Uh-huh. I've been told by, for years by people who are experts in that that that's where Ed really belongs. Like that's Ed's got a brand, he's recognized, he's, he's ahead of you know head of the game. So going to be developing that, eliminating the broadcaster. I mean, just the fact that the John Gomeshi post that Ed put up recently got re- it, it reached four hundred and twenty thousand people. Yeah. Um, people were talking about it. It started conversations. There was interviews, you know, with Ed across the country. Um, that it showed was me a whole new medium for Ed, and just seeing people go back and forth with Ed on Facebook. So, yeah, Ed, let me tell you, I think you got a point, but I want to argue with this. Exactly. And that what that told me was, after Ed left, you know, national TV, nobody stepped in to have these conversations. Yeah, nobody stepped in to speak in the way Ed does to address a subject in a way that people can relate to, and so. That's an important voice in this country, and it's uh, something that I, I want to keep going. So we're going to – I don't want to give too much away, but a U.S. website uh, just contacted me. They want Ed to do a regular weekly uh, segment, and it's a fairly popular website in the States, um, and a very popular news service, online news service here. Uh, I'm going this afternoon to have a final meeting. They want Ed every week to talk about uh, editorial comments and things like that. These are all video. Um, so you'll see that uh, soon. You know, wa- go to at Ed the Sock um, or on Facebook. It's the real Ed the Sock. Used to have a, Ed used to have a personal page with the 5,000 maximum you know, fans. Right. And uh, we had like 300 people on waiting list. And then Facebook nuked it because they said Ed's not real. Even though stage names and things like that are allowed. So I'm, de- I'm dealing with Facebook Canada right now to try to resume that. But right now, the fan page is the place. Plus, just started an Ed Tumblr as well. Okay. So that's the places that you're going to find Ed. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me in. And it, this has been a really uh, entertaining conversation. For me too. 
That's your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I am on Twitter at Jesse Brown, and the show's website is at canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Christopher DeMello, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday morning. If you like this show, support it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.